You're listening to Saltgrass, and today's episode is a conversation with Kath Coff, which meanders and goes off track, but always comes back to point. And as anyone who's had the opportunity to have a chat with Kath knows, even when she goes off topic, she's always right on point. Kath is known and respected locally as a community leader, a teacher at The Meeting Place, which is a cultural learning school for Indigenous kids, and CEO of Naldoran, which is the independent not-for-profit Aboriginal organisation that runs The Meeting Place, amongst many other wonderful initiatives. What many locals don't know about Kath, though, is the extent of her professional life outside of our community. She's currently undertaking a PhD and is kept very busy doing consulting work right across the state. My intention for this conversation with Kath was to explore a different way of getting to know people that Kath has shared with our community and I thought was really beautiful. I also wanted to talk to her about Zero Net Emissions, which has subsequently become the Wararak Initiatives. And I also wanted to talk about the amazing crowdfunding campaign that enabled Naldoran to buy a significant piece of land last year. We met to record this about six months ago and back then I was working at the sustainability group still and Kath had just received the news, like within minutes of us meeting, that they had reached the target and they would be able to buy the land, which was a really huge moment and quite emotional. In the following weeks, we watched as the donations kept on coming in to the crowdfund so that not only could they have the land and own it under the Western legal system, but they could also, you know, build and set up some some great things to do on it. And of course, land back is a huge thing. I mean... The fact that Aboriginal people have to buy land in the first place is obscene. But a lot of Indigenous people in our communities have never owned land. They don't own the house they live in. You know, it's really significant to have a piece of country that they can go to and share and, you know, just be with each other and connect to country and feel safe on. It's a big deal. So in this episode, we ended up just talking about that moment in time briefly because Actually, what we'd like to do is meet again on country and talk with more members of the community about what it means that they have their own land now. And of course, before we start, I need to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country and this interview was conducted on Jara Country, which is home of the Jajarung people, who've been custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Through that time, they have taken and continue to take care of country, the rivers, mountains, trees and animals, and I'd like to honour this country, the elders who have cared for it in the past and present, and also the young, proud Aboriginal people who will be our leaders tomorrow. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. What's the best way to refer to you? How do you introduce yourself? It's a really important question, actually, and it's a constant thing in regards to the differencing in how non-Indigenous people or allies introduce themselves in regards to how we do. For us, it's really important about positioning yourself, and that's not necessarily through your qualifications, but positioning as an Aboriginal woman or person is very much about protocols, about what gives you the right to speak, I suppose, is the best way of describing it. 
and through Western cultures it, it is about your qualifications but through our ways of seeing the world is actually not so for me it's a really good question because a lot of people come up and say Arnie Kath and and I sort of say no I'm not Arnie Kath I'm Kath Koff that was what Arnie Julie had described me as it, it's funny because I probably in my personal life is Catherine yeah. but some people I even say Kath and they don't know who I am so literally my name is Kath Koff in the wider community. Uncle Rick lately has started referring to me as the CEO of Naldorang, this is Kath Koff. But yeah, the elder and auntie bit, I know people are being really kind when they say it. And a lot of our kids call me that. But this is not something that you choose. This is something that the community chooses for you. But to become an aunt that everybody calls you, that's sort of like at the elder level. I don't really see myself in that space at the moment. There are a few people that are saying that they do, but I, yeah, at the moment, I feel very comfortable people just calling me Kath Koff. I suppose I introduce myself as Kath Koff, a Yoda Yoda woman living on Jara country. There's a way of introducing in depth when you meet someone that you've shared with people that's about explaining a bit of your heritage. In regards to introducing yourself, there's a, I talk about this a lot and do training on this actually in the wider Victorian community is is a lot of people sort of talk about in relation to how can they change, how can they help, what can they do better and I said the biggest thing is what we want to know is who you are not what you do. So we want to know what your what your ancestry is, we want to know what part of country that you love, we want to know what part of country do you really connect with. Um, we want to know what community that you really connect with. Because for us, or for myself, because I can't speak for a whole race of people, that's another thing that people don't realise, because we're all very different, is it's really in relationship to your spirit and, and your heart. And that's a platform to move forward on. It's like a baseline, I suppose. It's my teacher hat on using those terms. And it's a beautiful thing because it, it's inclusive. No one can get it wrong. And it doesn't separate. Qualifications can separate humans talking to each other, but this type of language or way of introducing yourself includes, it's inclusive and it brings people together. It talks about the commonalities. So I find a lot of non-Indigenous cultures, Western culture, it talks about, which is still beautiful, about people's individual qualities or qualifications. And I love that everyone is so individual, but I actually find it really interesting though, because if... I have dreams and hopes like we all do, but mine might be a bit, little bit different. But for me, it's really, I just wonder what if, what if all people started positioning themselves or introducing themselves in this way? Because then there wouldn't be a majority and there wouldn't be minority groups. We're not the only minority group in Australia. There wouldn't be minorities and there wouldn't be majority. If at the moment, the majority started seeing themselves more as individuals that have their own ancestors that have their own ways of connecting and relationship with country. They are from their own community or how they connect with the community that they're in. So if we start using language that like that, all of a sudden it breaks apart the dynamics of a majority and the minority, and it makes everyone amazingly beautiful in their own way. I remember I was at the Australian Education Research Conference and there was an Indigenous education group and I was actually in there, going in there for three days listening to amazing people in Indigenous education from all, you know, First Nations people from all around the world. That was, some of it was really hard to hear because there's a lot about what isn't working still. So I never forget one time I'm like, hmm, I might, because I don't know if 
many of you been to conferences, I get quite lost because there's lots of different things happening at the one time. And I remember walking past this room and it said on the door, activism in the classroom. And I'm like, hmm. So I went in there instead. And what was really beautiful is, I can't remember the person that was talking, but it was a beautiful thing about everyone really standing up for who they are and what they believe as individual students and that within a classroom as Aboriginal people we believe in multiple truths we don't believe there's only one way to believe and what to believe but wouldn't it be beautiful within a classroom where if you believed in you know the football culture that you you actually read up on it as to why it was important to you and you were able to argue it just as someone was able to argue if they loved knitting I'm just using really generalized terms here but it was that they talked about that we, the next generation is actually creating a group or individuals that not only just gave opinions about how they wanted to live or what was important to them, but actually re researched or educated themselves as to why that's important to them. So you could actually argue that within the classroom. So all of a sudden, you've got people standing up for their own belief systems. They're all very different from each other. So therefore, by doing this, by having this type of classroom setting, there is no majority that everyone has a right to speak and that everyone has a right to their belief systems. And I just think that's a really beautiful way of, of honouring everybody in the classroom and it changes the dynamics, it makes that shift happen because this, it's too top heavy at the moment mm -hmm. and often people think it's us this is where at the disadvantage. Seriously, people ring me up. I get some very unusual phone calls, and I feel I a little while ago got one. I had a really big had a really big day, and I'm getting older and probably more straight in my talking. But I and they said, oh, we're just because of COVID, we want to see what it's like with COVID, and we so we're just ringing up all the disadvantaged groups and how they responded during COVID. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, you must have the wrong phone number. <laughs> and they're like, and I said, and they're sort of like. They really paused, they didn't know what to say, and, and they, go, they go, you are the CEO of Nada, and I said, yeah. And they're like, you, you can feel the pause, and yeah, and anyway, so I explained, we, we weren't disadvantaged during COVID. We actually came together, we adapted, we were very strong. We, we were starting to hand out food two weeks prior to COVID because we knew what was happening. And we ended up supporting a lot of non-Indigenous dogs. I ended up chairing the Mount Alexander Food Pantry because, because of how we see the world and because of how we come together. Mm. So, in, sorry, Ali, in regards to your very first part of this <laughs> okay. talking that I'm doing, to introduce yourselves, yeah. it, to do it in a way that's inclusive. And I have done this, I do this, have done this activity from early childhood to little children to CEOs of very mainstream organisations and the impact is amazing. You've got people sitting around the table that have never really known each other and you've got someone who's like, oh my gosh, I love the, I'm a water person. No, I, oh my gosh, I'm a water person too. Or someone ice, whether I know someone that's ice, they love ice, they love eating ice, they love everything about ice. There was one guy who's actually a CEO of an organisation, his favourite thing was when you go, when you're out surfing, or out on the waves and you get dumped and you're down on the bottom of the ocean, that's his favourite place. So it's like all of a sudden all these people, I'm like, oh my gosh, so they're all of a sudden learning about new parts of who they are. Or the same as I've had people sitting around, oh my gosh, you're from this place, it's Italy, your ancestors, so are mine. So it's all about connecting mm. and the relationships with. So 
that's why it's important. Should we do an example? Do you want to introduce yourself in that way and I'll return it? Well, what I sometimes do is introduce myself from the Western way and then the Aboriginal way so you can feel the difference and perhaps you could do the same. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, yeah, my name's Kath. This is the Western way. My name's Kath. I have, I'm a single mum of four beautiful children, very passionate individuals. I... I'm the CEO of Run. I work at La Trobe University in Early Childhood Outdoor Ed and the Nexus program currently. I'm currently also doing my PhD. I am a fellow of and part of the Indigenous Fellowship for Leadership in Victoria. I'm a, a board member of the Kundi Wurrungagap Board. It's an Aboriginal run and led philanthropic board. I've published a few papers in this space starting to. I, I'm on various numerous boards and chair a lot of um, things in our local community yeah so yes lots happening now so for me in regards to indigenous relation to worldview so my name is Kath I'm a, a mother of four gorgeous children but within my community is the Jajarun community over this side of Big Hill so this is Nelson country there's also about I would think up to 70 other kids that fall under um, um, the umbrella of this community and the love and we are literally like a giant organism and community and and what's so beautiful about that there are some people that don't want to be included in that and that's actually all cool people don't want to openly identify and that's actually all cool like it's just purely accepting people for what they're wanting but there's so I, that's the community is the Jajaran community is a big hill so a lot of people are more specific about their community when we do this but I can't because that's seriously what it is and there's it's not just the Aboriginal community there's the other Australian community my space is that cultural interface space every day and it can be exhausting but that's not really part of the introduction I love wind I'm obsessed with wind. I love the freezing, gusty wind that everyone goes, oh my gosh, Kath, I can't believe you love that. I love standing on high places and really feeling that wind. But I also love the ancestral wind that I feel dances through the trees and I feel I gain lots of knowledge from that ancestral wind. I also am obsessed with water. I'm a water chick. So I love fresh water. I love salt water. I love being around it. I literally go like a little kid, like I'm in my natural habitat when I'm around water. So I love all, all parts of water. It really nurtures my spirit and my ancestry. So on my mum's side is where my Yorta Yorta heritage comes from, from Moira Lakes area uh, near Barma. We hold quite a lot of trauma in regards to our, our, my Aboriginal ancestry and we are constantly actually disowned, I suppose, by members of my mum's family because we openly identify so there's lots of stuff happens in that space i also though have on my mum's side swedish heritage and on my dad's side i have spanish heritage and also irish and on my dad's side that's the majority would be of irish heritage my maiden name is mcmahon we have the coat of arms for mcmahon and we so i would love to go over to county clare on the cliffs of because that i believe i'm gonna i would have a relationship with country over there as i have when i go on to yorta yorta country we my sisters and i and an aunt did a walk on country 76 kilometers and my spirit didn't want to come home but then i had a bossy aunt who said to me you have to go home Kath you, you go do ceremony or something there's too much work to be done your turn all right my turn. I, I probably went on a little bit you don't need to go on a bit say so okay, <laughs> okay so the western way of introducing myself my name is Alison Hanley I 
work at the local sustainability group and I run a podcast about the environment and the climate crisis. I live in Castle, Maine with my partner and pets and yeah, that's about it. I'm a visual artist and a creative person and I do that. I guess earlier in my life I really identified as an artist but these days I feel like that's just part of what I do in my life but I'm not focusing on that entirely. You know, that's softened for me, I guess. And then, yeah, I think I'd, I, would, I wouldn't even usually give that much information if I was introducing myself. So in the Indigenous way, I would say my name's Ali and I live on Jara country, but I grew up in Nam in Melbourne. And then what do I do? So, so what part of country do you love? So I, here in Jara country, I really love... The res, which is a man-made structure, but it's this huge body of water, water. fresh water. And also walking along the creeks. I really love walking along the creeks. And in terms of those elemental things, I definitely think I'm a water person because I grew up just loving the beach. Every summer we'd go up to Marimbula, up on the sort of halfway to Sydney on the coast, and we'd just spend all day on the beach. and, And that was only like one little part of the year, but I really feel like that and when I came to central Victoria it took me a long time to adjust to fresh water to feel okay swimming in fresh water instead of salt water but now I really love fresh water too so and then your ancestry so my ancestry is I've had multiple generations here in Australia in Adelaide and Sydney and then at the grandparents generation came to Melbourne but beyond that is mostly English and Irish and a bit of German, actually. My mother's side of the family has a strong German connection. And apparently there's some Lebanese somewhere in my dad's side of the family. This way of seeing the world, because we're very big on not holding, owning knowledge. So this particular framework, I want to honor Dr. Michelle McMahon, who did a PhD on this. The information was also from Chilisa and Dr. Leroy Littlebear. So, yeah, so I just thought I wanted to honour that because, and I remembered the part of the ancestry that we forgot is about you. We believe that you hold memory in your, in your body, in your cells, about some sort of ancestral skill or knowledge that you have in a particular area. Did you come into the world having a particular skill in the area? And I've been doing this for a while now, so I've had lots of time to think about it. So I, I think my particular skill is as an empath and at times got myself into difficulties sometimes because I see people's spirit, feel people's spirit before, understand, you know, the layers that protect them. But that was something that came into this world. Mm. So what about you, Ali? Do you have a particular skill in the area that you don't know where it came from? Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually would consider myself an empath as well and very, I feel like I feel people before I understand them. And sometimes I find it confusing about whether I'm feeling what they're feeling or what I'm feeling. Yeah, there's that. And I guess on the back of that core kind of ability or, or skill or whatever you want to call it, I'm interested in psychology, but also story. So people's stories. And, and I think that's what I'm doing with this podcast is trying to capture people's stories and understand and, and share that 
you know, so people can understand each other better. So the next part is your community. So it's like what part of the community? So it can be family, it can be your friends, it can be your neighbours, it can be some sort of group that you're involved in, but it also can be anyone that affects you in a positive way. So if you're having a really crappy day and you go down to the local news agents or something, I don't know, and you're the same person's there and you know they're going to get a nice smile and a hello and that recognition, they're also part of your community. So who would you say is part of your community? I feel like I've really found community in Castlemaine and it's a much broader community than I had when I was back in Melbourne when I was amongst people who were all like me. They're a similar age and they were all interested in the art and music and that was about it. Whereas here I really feel like I've connected to a really deeper and more broad community. I think people in the arts and in anything to do with care of the earth, so sustainability and environmental activism and, and nature... And, and that includes farmers and people who are trying to grow and work with the earth too. I like that you mentioned that. So I'm a farmer's daughter. It was funny because when I was looking at running to be part of council, I'm like, and people are like, oh, you're going to be this and that. I said, mm, no, nah. I'm actually, you have no, you know, me as a human, I have multiple air spaces. So yeah, I was brought up as a farmer's daughter. I would be out there. We, there's seven in our family six girls and one boy and the boy came a lot later so it was us girls that were out there driving the tractor fixing the irrigation milking the cows we used to be able to milk the cows completely by ourselves without dad so i lived i suppose in my childhood in a in a way that we had to participate we had to help to survive to get income coming in we also had to we very much lived on country so mum would pack our lunch and we would just head off and they had no idea where we are. I still like to think it was a moment because we lived always out of town, a long way out of town. I think because we were fairly wild, they thought the wildness would be better out on country as opposed to in with other people. I'll be totally honest. We were a little bit crazy. I can't believe we're all still alive, to be honest, when I look back at what we what we did. But I, when I talk in my PhD about it, I was brought up by country. So and a lot of people sometimes wonder where the resilience comes from because I do hold trauma and huge levels at responsibility but I feel really grateful and part of my privilege as an Indigenous or Aboriginal woman was I know how to gain strength from country, I know to hear country and I know how to be a part of country that can impact how I am when I'm having a really hard day. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really been really important and Perhaps if you're looking through the Western model, we lived in poverty, but I never really saw that. We were always encouraged to learn and to love and to be very passionate. Music was always a thing. Reading was always a thing. Going out on country was always a thing. And we're not discouraged to be passionate in all those, what that means. Like if we wanted to really voice our opinion, we were allowed to, you know, we were almost celebrated. We went to Catholic school one time. And I remember mum seeing our report card in that and it said argumentative, questioning. And she's good, good, good. Because she just, they had a strong belief. They just wanted us to question because we have a strong belief in something outside what we physically can see. There's a spiritual element. But when you, that wasn't at offer. So she just wanted us to be able to do anything that was in regards to questioning or understanding or finding our own identity, our spiritual identity, as well as all other parts of our identity. So that was a privilege because I didn't know that a lot of people don't have that. And I had very parents that were so in love with each other, was so passionate, often having little breaks from each other because of the intensity. But I was brought up like that. I was brought up with people that were so in love with each other. 
So that's big too. And I know that's a huge privilege. And they were together, a huge privilege. Mm. So because I talk a lot about privilege and decolonising people's ways of seeing the world in my work. And maybe those things aren't considered a privilege in the Western way of seeing the world. But as an Aboriginal woman, I see those things holding strong privilege for me because it's what gets can continue my ancestors. I can go to sleep at night in the fetal position crying because I've had a really hard day to then wake up feeling all oh, these ancestors are coming, obviously healed me because there's more work to be done. <laughs> yeah, all country. Yeah. I guess on that note, I'm curious when you spoke about all the different things you do and your role in community, what does a day for you look like? Yeah, it's really different. It's really unusual because of the Western system, because of the dominant system and because of the huge amounts of trauma that is still there very much so. Racism is still very much there. This is still in, even in Castlemaine. There's still not safety in the schools that my day can be is totally extreme. And I find that really interesting because a lot of people live in, a, in one space or one type of personal bubble, but I can go from doing consultative work down in Melbourne to sitting in, I'm about to sit in on a conference for our Indigenous philanthropic major conference with other people around the world to making sure someone's got enough food to making sure that some of our kids that are struggling that them you know that I'm there while in regards to talking with child protection to organizing and and scheduling stuff for our kids to having chairing meetings in with allies to writing curriculum like it's really like and answering some really bizarre questions when I did my Black Lives Matter speech a lot of Now just a little note for those listening who are not in the Central Victorian region and who may not know this but back in 2020 as the Black Lives Matter movement took hold in the US here in Australia there were really powerful resonances as well and even here in our small town in central Victoria people took to the streets and we had a rally. The need for racial justice is a global problem of course and here in Australia the pointy end of that stick is around Aboriginal deaths in custody and incarceration of children. So Kath spoke eloquently at that local meeting back in 2020 And that's what she's referring to here. And I have a link in the show notes for you if you want to read her words. And that rally became the catalyst for a much larger and longer lasting local movement of pledges to do better, people paying the rent and for non-Indigenous Australians to take stock of our privilege. When I did my Black Lives Matter speech, a lot of my day is helping other people understand their privilege and not in a mean way because it's a... It's a beautiful way. Just people think when you talk to them about privilege that you're being disrespectful, which you're actually not. What I'm trying to say is no, it's really important that we all know where your starting point is. And then you can move from that. You can go, okay, this is my starting point. This is not that person's starting point or that person's, this is mine. It's no one's fault. It's not like a blame thing, but once you know where your starting point is, then you can go, okay, and then you can move from it. But you have to know that because so many people don't start at the same starting point. And I've been teaching this in schools as well. And because that level of not knowing or is not aware of your own privilege, but it's also not aware of your own power. People are in positions of power and don't see that as that. But when you aren't empowered, power imbalance is a really big thing. And power imbalance can happen in all sorts of ways. I work a lot in all the schools in this area. And someone said to me one time, oh, Kath, why do you always look at 
the minority groups? Why do you always look at what separates and divides us? We're all humans, we're all people. Why do you always go on about, you know, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, or for me, gender diversity is a really big thing. Myself and my children are all very gender diverse in how we choose to identify and who we choose to love. It's very much within my own um, immediate family and I'm very passionate about. And I said, I love that that's your world. But until everyone's world sits in that space, until everyone feels that there is equality in how they choose to be and how they choose to identify in their everyday life, I will continue to have to fight against the system because I know of, of kids that don't often have places to sleep. This isn't just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. Where the next food's coming from, to getting attacked because they've transitioned, or to racism, to people's negative stereotypes of particular minority groups, like even people that have newly arrived. So many people don't live in that world. So many people, colour is still a really big thing. Not being white in all shapish forms of what that means is still huge. Their lives are still impacted. And all people who don't have money, who don't have the wealth. Yeah, I just think until that happens, then I will continually to fight for that, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. I said to her, I would love the day that that's real. It was the same with the people saying when with the Black Lives Matter thing was really prevalent and then people going, but all lives matter. I'm going, I know they do. That's the point. That's why we're actually doing it. <laughs> because it's still very much a Black Lives Don't Matter. And when people go, you know, oh, Kath, like this, I'm like, hey, more of our kids are taken now than ever has been. Um, and this is in Victoria. People don't understand that until the system changes, until the true history is taught in the schools and until people understand that there's... This way of seeing the world has plumped itself on country in Australia and it's not working. Mm. It's not working for anyone. Like you said in regards to the Indigenous relational worldview, people are craving it. They're hungry for it because it's, it brings about connectedness and relationships and the relationships with country and each other, not about separateness. And I even talk about this in regards to people that are strong environmental activists and pushing the climate change issue. I have a little bit of a different view on that scenario than perhaps others do. On that topic, you were recently involved in the local group that was trying to activate towards zero net emissions in our region. What did you see in that group and what did you think? So it wasn't just that group. So I'm actually done my environmental science degree. I have a love affair of science. I have a love affair of quantum mechanics. My pin-up man during my teenagehood was Albert Einstein. So very attractive, obviously. I <laughs> know, <laughs> it's ways of thinking. But anyway, so just to be clear, it's not just the group here. I do work in the wider Victorian community. And the one thing that I have found is, obviously, they have a love and passion for change, which there has to be because we've messed it up. But I suppose what I say to people and what I talk about is in regards to some people that their whole life is about the environment and they use that term environment. And they'll use Latin terms to describe things about country and about plants and animals and things like that. And I worry, and I've said this, so I don't know how much people love what I say, but I say putting a Latin name to something that's not Latin 
why not use the name from here or even the name that's describing it? I just worry it, it, it disassociates people from it. And the reason I feel fairly confident in my worry is because when I talk to people like that, like I just did with you, what part of country do you connect with? For some people who have worked in the environment for many, many years, this is the first time they've ever thought of country like that. And that makes me think, hmm, they love it. It's like, it's really unusual. It's like people say, we've never been asked the question. So it's like finally they feel they have permission to even think about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because that's just part of our everyday life. Oh my gosh, yes, I love this. I love that, you know, I'm part of this because it connects you to parts of country far more than knowing all the Latin names for things. The other thing is, I think this is in regards to the climate crisis, I say this is not a country crisis. Country is going to heal itself. It always has. It can constantly replenishes herself. What the climate crisis issue is about is are humans going to still be here? That's the issue. Absolutely. We have to change our thinking and we have to change how we live our lives. And I think COVID was a way of country, to be honest, trying to put us in the naughty corner because we've been being absolutely ridiculous in how we live our lives, you know, and that level of capitalism and consumerism and everything like that is not working. As a human race, if we don't change, we're going to have other learning lessons, I believe. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. So I find it really interesting. I think, yeah, climate crisis is a human issue and she will heal herself and she has many times before. But are we going to be here? That's the question and that's the worry, obviously. But the other thing that I find really hard, again, we talked about relationships instead of separating. Mm -hmm. A lot of language that the environmental movements or environmental activists use is exclusive. It's like a beautiful little in-group. Mm. We purposely use inclusive language. You need to bring everyone along for the ride if you want to make change. Mm -hmm. You need to bring farmers along, you need to bring people that are living under the poverty line along, you need to bring people that are just living in cities or towns. But the only way you're going to do that is to be brave to bring about language that includes everybody, but therefore you're going to have to also be brave to bring about and open yourself up to people's different values and belief systems which is something our worldview, our Aboriginal ways, is very much. We don't have a thing that there's one way you should see the world. Mm. So climate crisis, or to get to zero emissions, needs to be that you have to open your heart and mind to everyone's way of doing that and be patient and gentle in that space. Mm. Because as soon as you make judgments, it shuts people off mm. and you can shut off whole groups of people. Mm. And it's nothing will change then. There'll just be the environmental activists fighting for it rest of everyone doing little bits but not doing anything fundamental so actually in the whole scheme of it nothing will I believe change unless we, we have to change as a human race of people mm. and you know I just hope it doesn't have to get too bad I think we're sort of already there if people don't hear what the learning lessons are happening I don't know what, what it's going to take there's an analogy that my, my sister has used and Dr Lira Littlebear has used which I find is a really beautiful way of describing the differencing so it's like when you when you see a tree, you know. So some people see a tree. Oh my gosh, that is a beautiful tree. Wow, look at that. That's gorgeous. And so that tree, because this is how humans see themselves. So that tree holds meaning because then you as a human says it does. It all of a sudden has a meaning. It was just a randomly there, and all of a sudden it had meaning because you said it was. That's one way. 
Another way is, and this is very much what I think a lot of people who work with in the environment do, they, they all stand around a group and discuss the tree. And they'll take the tree apart. What are the parts of the tree? So it'll be like, oh, there's the branches, there's the trunk. So they're actually dissecting the tree and its habitat and what it needs to survive, but they're looking at it in, in compartments. Another way is that everything about being a tree is within the tree or the knowledge. Mm. So on, on a very small atomic level, everything about that tree is within it, within the cells of the tree. The memory of all the parts of the tree are within that. Mm. So the tree knows how to be a tree. Yes. We don't need to know. No. <laughs> and that also, that's why you can have so many of the same species because yeah. they all have the knowledge, you know. But then we have, through Indigenous relational worldview, we take it to the next step. So anything that's animate, alive, anything that is made out of carbon, so if you think of the periodic table, everything that's made out of carbon or animate is alive. And this is a little bit of a tricky concept for people to understand. We have a belief system that country is alive. Everything comes from country. So as humans, we hold no more or less importance than any other part. So therefore knowledge is revealed to us for particular reasons, but it's also revealed to a rock or a blade of grass or a tree or the waves or the wind. We are, everything is actually connected and part of everything else. So if you hurt a tree, you're hurting yourself or you're hurting your neighbor. Mm. If you kill something without doing it with honor, then you are also doing that. A lot of people in this country would have heard Aunty Julie do the teachings over and over again. I have, and I, I love it. And I actually, I have probably heard it probably more than most, certainly. But I get something from it every time. And in regards to the climate or the environment, the laws, the LORES of this land, if people really take heed of them, then we would have huge change. There's three teachings, respecting yourself, respecting others and respecting the environment. You know, yo, which, you know, the whole thing of trying to be cool, although Aunty Julie is very cool, I'm not sure of my level of coolness in that space, <laughs> but you know, trying to do the wrapping thing. But if you really look at those, yeah. we are meant to be the custodians, the looker-afters of country and the animals and the vegetation and everything. But you can't do that unless you honour yourself. There's a clear reason why respecting yourself is first. If people don't understand their own worth, if people don't work through their own stuff, if people don't see the beauty of who they are, it's like that thing in an aeroplane where you have to put your oxygen mask on first. Because if you don't feel that, if you're not honouring yourself, you have less to give. Age of 30s where love and reason marry for us is a way how we see the world. So you not only do you still have the passion, but you also have huge levels of responsibility and accountability. So that's really important that people are constantly trying to better themselves then to be there for others in every sense of that word people are too busy separating themselves worried they don't have enough to give they don't realize if you give and if you trust that we're all connected then what you need will come back you just have to let that bit go and it will come because if we all believed in that way, then we're not having to hold on to this worried about you have to do enough for yourself or your family. It will just be. Then, then country, then the environment. Mm -hmm. 
and we're meant to be there fully dedicated to that and if we were there we wouldn't be the predator on the top of the food chain or the pyramid we would be completely with all parts of country and animals and everything that's on it this ownership of knowledge is a real concern because ego is a concern so if anyone does things out of ego you're doing for the self you're not doing for the greater good of others and the world so we have a big thing about ego when I talk to people I can feel and it's ego and some of it I understand trauma does that it's a way of protecting themselves but ego separates and divides and it also this feeling that you have ownership over things none of us own anything I don't believe especially knowledge and I believe knowledge only comes up from country when it's needed to particular people. Some people believe it comes down. But you know how ideas sort of float around? Mm. And it's like you have an idea and you think, ah, oh, I should do that. You don't do it. Then you've heard someone else has done it. Exactly. It's like it's like they're just floating around until someone goes, oh, I'm going to grab it, I'm going to do that. And intuitively you often fight these ideas come to you, but you don't always take them up. And you think, sometimes you think, gosh, I wish I'd taken up on that idea. <laughs> like that was a good idea. But ultimately the collective, it's the same as, you know, the migration of birds and, and other animals. It's this concept or idea, we're all connected, everything is connected. So when I talk about country and protecting country, that's how I talk. I guess I wonder, given how we live in houses and have roads and there's more building and more people. Do you see a way that we can transition that bulldozing our entire way of living? Well, I totally agree with what Annie Julie talks about, about dams and fences. Mm. It's a really good question. And cars, man, I know it gets us to places and stuff. Yeah, you know, I used to have a car myself. I do have a hybrid though, because my children said you're either getting a hybrid next car, mum, you want to kill us. So they're the options my children give me. But I, I worry about, because so, you see so much death on the roads, it really impacts me on my spirit when I um, see the death. And I just wonder, because if we allow things to roam more freely and we're living as a collective, how that looks. Currently I have some emus, my babies, and it's constantly like, gosh, I wish I, I could just pull down all the fences and let them roam because I live at Yapina, Yapinya, and it's emu country out there. Mm. So it feels like maybe they should be allowed to roam around, but no, that's, I know that's not the thing. So it's just like, again, fences separates people mm. and it gives that sense of ownership over things. And I understand, like, again, I'm a farmer's daughter, so I have this conflicting scenario. I understand people living off the land. Mm. They know country way more than a lot of other people do. I can give you that about farmers. Mm. They know how to read country mm. and they know how to read weather. And that's a huge levels of responsibility that farmers have because we need farmers for the eating of the food and the surviving because not everyone has those skills or the room. Mm. So it's been like really interesting during COVID and after needing all these pickers because we need to pick the fruit or collect so we can all eat or the system breaks down, the current system, mm. which I think probably is a good, little bit of a good thing if it breaks down. It's the same as I don't buy now hooved animals to eat. I, I can't not eat meat. I have tried, but I have a carnivore instinct in my spirit. So, I, you know, or omnivore, I eat both. But uh, my children know what goes into the process of eating meat. So we have killed our own animals in order for them to be aware of the process or how to honour that process. And I've had a few people angry with me about that. And I go, but do you eat meat? And they're like, yes. I said, so isn't it important that your children know that it doesn't come from packages from the butchers or the mm. supermarket? What actually goes into 
because it's again that separation. I became a vegetarian in my early 20s because I came to that realization that if I don't think I personally could kill an animal to eat it, then I don't have the right to buy something from the shops. That's just how I felt. And I sort of continue to feel that way, I think. It's, it's actually a really big thing. And, and also the level of impact on the environment that hoof animals gives. You know, there's two reasons for that. It's a really big thing. I think people need to be aware and there'd be an awful lot of... Ne- we wouldn't need so many paddocks of cows yeah. or sheep yeah. or all sorts of animals if people actually knew what went into their li- the killing of their life. And again, that's part of the first law or teaching, the Bunjil teaching is in regards to if you're going to kill an animal, you should be eating and honouring all of it and you should do it in an honourable way not just disposing of it or having that how it is and killed in the abattoirs you know and then everyone because they disassociate from it they think it's okay I find it fascinating you know so much of consumerism is is about making it okay for people to do things that actually aren't okay or you should know you have responsibilities for it I I always remember I went I was out and near a fruit tree one time and this mother wouldn't let her child eat the fruit off the tree and I think there's a little caterpillar on it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it hasn't, it hasn't eaten this piece of fruit because there's no hole there yet. We just yeah. take the caterpillar and put it back on the tree. This is a perfectly piece, and they would not. So it's, again, this disassociation. And a lot of people have talked about it. It's like, yeah. do people not know where fruit or vegetables come from? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know they must logically know. Well, sometimes I know that they don't. Or even milk. Yeah. comes from cows or goats or yeah. so I've heard even sheep people have milked sheep other cultures and yeah. so yeah it comes from that yeah. and it's interesting because people think that's dirty or unhygienic I'm like just where it comes from just because you've had these levels of disassociation mm. with it as a side note I was just online someone shared with me a QI fact about sourdough bread and I've just done a couple of episodes on sourdough and it was basically that the baker him or herself will impact the flavor of the bread simply because of the microbial activity on their hands even if they've washed their hands or do you know their breath or whatever then the bakery the air of the bakery impacts so each bakery will have its own unique flavor but I did I made the mistake of reading the comments and there's so many people with vomit emojis and like oh imagine if he's just like you know scratched in the wrong place what are you eating this is why I never eat sourdough bread blah 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 all these people and I'm like I actually commented and said, you know that every chef who cooks for you in a restaurant is doing it with their bare hands. You know that, right? <laughs> like people, but people are really disconnected with the reality of the world they live in. But also germs. Yeah, yeah. So I study quite a bit of microbiology and I'm like, yeah. uh, I'm like, yeah, they're honest all the time. <laughs> Just because you don't go around, people don't go around telling you. And, I, and a lot of people like, oh, I have to use these disinfectants. I'm like... Now, did you know temperature of hot water can often do it if you, you feel the need that you want to? And the other thing too, I'm like, and it's just, again, if people aren't educated properly, not by commercialism of buying, yeah, there's, there's so much logic's been taken out of situations, like in regards to germs and everything. And I'm like, we have it on our bodies all the time. And I'm like... It's essential for our life. It is. And yeah, also too, it's like, if we continue to not build our resilience or immunity system up that's what will end up killing us because if our because viruses it's interesting because it's actually what happened viruses and will constantly because that's their job they mutate and changing all the time for survival so it will keep trying to survive to live like everyone else does or every everything else does so 
if you don't build your bodies up, if you don't build your children's body up for, in a healthy way that your immunities that can fight these things or they don't impact you, then, then you've weakened yourself and your children and then it will end up being that they will become really sick mm-hmm. because they will just keep getting stronger. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the piece of land that's being purchased? When we arrived here this morning, it had just ticked over to reaching the goal of the crowdfunding campaign, which is a pretty significant moment. Yeah, so, yeah, hugely significant. I feel a little bit in shock, to be honest, because it happened in about a week. So a lot of us have been working through... It's interesting, you know, there's always double-sided swords to everything. So obviously we're so excited and it's just so honourable, but it's almost like a little bit like a disbelief too, like... We didn't know we people saw us so much like that. Like it's it's such a level of respect. So this level of humbleness, and again, this always working through processing your own worth. But we hold lots of trauma as a race of people in regards to that on this country. We went for grants because we had a lot of people saying, "Oh, go for this grant." We really tried. We're trying to get it because we want somewhere that the kids can call home. We've constantly been fighting for that. But it's like we, we just weren't successful because we're not a large organisation. We're not a native title organisation. We're not a massive health organisation. We grassroots just created what we felt was important. We are education and that's now in part of our name. Is We're now completely independent and Aboriginal run and led and doing it the way we want to do it, which is really exciting. But it was the allies. And we, oh, I was actually, in regards to the piece of land, seeing Uncle Rick's face out on that land, I mean, anyone, and he's got any sort of heart would want to do what I've, we've just done to push to try and get the land. I've never seen his spirit so in such a space when he's out there. And then Auntie Julie as well, and then the kids. So it was just like a dream we kept believing in and not giving up on. And then it was sort of when we didn't get the last grant that we went for. It was, you know, the allies of... Not only really, that were like, why don't we try to do this crowdfunding business? And we, we felt really, to be honest, we still do struggle with asking for money, even though I understand logically about the paying the rent and that, you know, you're asking for money for land that was actually always Uncle Rick's in the first place. And how do we feel about that? And there's so many layers to that level of situation. But, you know, we're, I understand that's a huge part of the conversation, but there's so much why we have to buy the land as opposed to getting in it's so much change has to happen with the non-indigenous system you know that's just one small question about change why is that happening what why isn't rick not getting paid the same as the mayor that's what i believe mm-hmm. if the mayor of a shy gets paid so should the elders they hold just as much responsibility if not more and it's always it's not like a term there's not a term so i have been fighting that little fight myself for a while now about Rick should be getting a wage from the Shire because that's where he lives and that's where he's constantly doing stuff for the love of it. He does it because he's beautiful, but he shouldn't have to. No one else does that. Mm. I find it really interesting that people feel Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should do that because no one else does and we certainly don't want our kids doing that. Tell me why the land is necessary in terms of the school at Yapin and, and the meeting place and also what your hopes for the land are. So... Currently, we have an agreement with the Education Department and Castlemaine Secondary College to have the European site, but it's always not been a long-term situation. We tried to make it so. That didn't happen. We need a place. We've got programs going all over the shop. We've got the offices up at Community House, but the European's out there. We want somewhere that's home. We want somewhere that we can all be. And, you know, more and more, like, 
Aunty Julie's love of bush tucker and we've got our kids now doing, we've got one of the new programs is a school-based apprenticeship thing in conservation land management. So we now coordinate that. But our dream would be that we do conservation land management out there through you know an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of doing and being. We find that going to be really important. So that's that part. Like there's so many parts. So we just need a place. We need a place that's ours. We need a place that people can relax in, in their spirit. We're always working in the cultural interface space. We love other people lots, but at sometimes it's really just good to just be. For me at the moment, to be honest, for me to be is either at home or I have to go somewhere else mm. I, for me to have some space. So it's, we need a home. Our kids need a home. A really big thing for us is succession because none of us are going anywhere. I say to people when because they're coming in and out of jobs, I'm like, I'm so sorry, I might jar you, but you're going to have to learn to live with it because I'm not going anywhere. Rick's not going, do you know what I mean? This is, this is a long-term gig for us. That's it. It's not like we get another job. And so succession's really important. Building the next lot of youth up's really important about succession into the future. The thing that keeps me going every day and a lot of other community members Aboriginal people is we don't want our kids to struggle with the same as what we struggled with. If we can make a slight change in that, that's what we fight for, that's what we try to do. So the land, having everything in the one space, having it that it's ours, having that they don't have to do that push is why we try to make things that just that little bit easier and people's hearts more open and when we first started and it was interesting we've, a few, we've been evaluated a few times because we're we don't just work with our kids, we don't just work with our community. We don't even just work with the schools because we're education. We work with the wider community because ultimately for sustainable change, it has to be the wider community. And when I remember when we first, we first started, people go, oh, Kath, really? That's just an impossible dream. How could you actually change a whole community's way of being? And I'm like, just a little bit at a time. Each relationship, each love. I go to work, sometimes it help, helps me through my day is I say I'm going out to give love to people. But every time I respond to an email, every time I do something, it's trying, it's sharing through love. And I can be exhausted sometimes and probably I come across a bit straight, but that's because I've said the same thing hundreds of thousands of times, like seriously, this is not a new space. We've been in this, we've been hanging out in this community doing this stuff. Only Julia as, I don't know, I think most of her, teacher education so over 40 years uncle brian beforehand you know so it's for a long time vic say huge we've huge honor for vic say so when people are saying about you're the ceo of nanorang it sounds so fancy but i actually i've only just started taking a wage and it was because i have some bossy beautiful admin staff that like if we're taking a wage you're taking a wage currently i've taken a wage for six hours a week so all because we don't have the money we don't have the lots of money. We don't have it. Most of our other people that work for us is a part-time, mm -hmm. doing way more than part-time work, and that really impacts me. I don't like that setup. So that's why we're constantly going for grants, trying to find funding. Mm -hmm. But we don't have, we don't get education funding, because a lot of people talk about the meeting place. Oh, it's exclusive. I'm like, it's exclusive because if you knew what we did the meeting place on, you would probably be fall over. Most people going out there aren't getting paid. Mm -hmm. Uh, including myself currently, and I'm running the meeting place at the moment with only Julie Notwell. So it's this really interesting space that people don't have any inkling of we, people are doing it because they believe it's the way forward. Mm. And then it's sort of like, I don't know, that movie about the field of dreams. Oh, yeah. If you build it, they will come. We're still sort of hoping that might happen. 
because I'm getting tired. I don't want to do all the stuff in the wider Victorian community all the time. So I get paid as a consultant. So I feel like a bit like Robin Hood. Yeah. Not that I would take from the rich, but I do stuff that pays me to then do my the work in community here. Mm. But that's getting a little bit tiring, and especially with Julie not well, their responsibilities have become bigger. So I'd, I dream of the day for myself personally and for Uncle Rick. Uncle Rick gets paid a wage mm. that he doesn't have to do that as well because he's doing that currently as well, mm. that I get paid to live and work here. I think some of the biggest thing to take away is that we have so many people which are so beautiful, coming up so enthusiastic and wanting to support and help. And I would say go and do training first. It's, it just helps you come back to us with an open heart and mind. So the critical reflections training, there's huge amounts of literature that the library even has for you in that space. But because there's so few of us doing so many different things, we love people's enthusiasm, but we are tired at times. But I'll say too that it's about coming together with an open heart and mind. So people often come and they don't even realise that. I think it's subconsciously. They come with their own agenda about what they want to get out of it. Because I have found a lot of non-Indigenous people, or you know, anyone, like they collect, want to collect knowledge. Like a magpie collects information. But it's not just about the knowledge, it's about the processing. It's about the ways that you honour that. So it's like, and this is a long time gig. People can't just collect all the information and it's there. This is not like a two-hour stint. This is a long journey stint. And I don't believe lots of change will happen until the next generation. Because mm. a lot of people in my age group hold too much trauma. So that's what I mean by long-term situation. So we have a lot of non-Indigenous people, allies coming up, and it's just like they want all the information, they think they've done it all. It's like, you know, that thing of qualifications. It's just like you have it all and then you've gained it and you've done, you know. That's not what hanging out of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is it's not about how you have relationship with countries, it's not about understanding the knowledge and the history it's been a constant place of learning mm. and probably the last thing to say is, and I want people to th really try to conceptualise this we don't believe in linear time so we never feel there's an ending we believe in circular time so it's like when the waves come in as the ocean or the wind or the thing it, you have times for it to come back and I think people always, they know that in regards to sadness or, you know, it's like if you haven't learnt your lesson, then it'll come back. You'll go through the same relationships. It might be a different person, but you have the same learnings. That's circular time. But people have, don't often look at them, their own journey as circular. So people have this panic that they're going to miss out on it. Or it's going to be the end. But maybe if you start looking at the world through circular time and that, yes, you'll come around, you'll learn something this time and, you know, in your process, but then you'll come around to another time and there'll be learn more. That's why I can keep hearing Annie Julie's teachings mm -hmm. because you're learning on a deeper part of who you are. Mm. And this rush and this pressure to gain all this information and then you've done it, it's the journey. We believe in the journey. We actually don't believe there is any destination and that's beautiful in itself because it means that you enjoy the moment. We hold time differently. It doesn't mean it's any less important. We hold time in witnessing people's spirit or hearing their heart. The human relationship with each other is where I hold, and I can't speak for everyone, where I hold the greatest value. Mm. But someone's it from the inside is just like, to me, that surpasses everything. And there's so many people that have not been seen, are not seen from the inside and are not witnessed in their heart. I think people need to do more of that.
So that was Cathcoff, a much respected and beloved Aboriginal leader here in Castlemaine. There are links to many of the things discussed in the show today, including sort of introduction that Cath shared with us and its origins. And you can find all those links at saltgrasspodcast.com or in the podcast show notes. For those of you listening on Main FM or 3MDR, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app. So you can listen to all back episodes of Saltgrass. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, 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 yeah. Salt, 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 grassroots, salt, grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.